Welcome everyone to another episode of Kiwi Talks. I am honored to be speaking to a well-known Kiwi actress. You might know her from Shortland Street, Outrageous Fortune, Fresh Eggs, or maybe Netflix has fallen in, in love. Claire Chittam, how are you doing? <laughs> Hi, Reese. Thanks for having me. That's all right. This has been a long like, time coming. In love is two ends. It's such a great pun. It is. It is. Since since we're on that, how did that even come about? How did you end up on that? Um, I guess what you probably mean is like, how did the show end up even sort of being made here? It was a it was written by two American women, and it was uh, but but always pegged with an American star, and therefore those American women sold the idea to Netflix in America. So it was a US Netflix production. It just happened to be set in New Zealand. Uh, unlike many things that obviously are US productions that come and shoot here and are, are you know, meant to be set in other places. Um, this was kind of, yeah, quite unique in that way because I definitely was really confused when I got the audition script. And I was like, what is, have, who has managed to get a film over the line with Netflix? <laughs> US, <laughs> um, never heard of these people. But um, yeah, there's these two women from uh, the US who actually write a lot or wrote a lot of films for the um what's it called, the Lifetime channel, you know, that Hallmark movie channel, those sort of channels in the US that are famous for making very lovely, safe, kind, no kissing until the last scene or, you know, swearing sort of uh, type movies. And this was Netflix's um, first foray into that genre. So the movie um, was, yeah, written by two Americans, but pitched to be shot in New Zealand um, and, you know, had this America, the storyline of an American uh, woman who sort of gets sent to this far off country um, because she wins an inn, which again is also something that Kiwis are like, what's an inn? We don't really call them inns, but it's the same as a B&B, a bed, a bed and breakfast, but of course in America they call them an inn. Uh, so lots of so it's quite weird for Kiwis to watch the film because we're like, what is going on here? And there's things in the movie that was script that even we as Kiwis were kind of like, oh no, we, you've got the wrong person saying that. <laughs> like that person wouldn't say yeah nah, <laughs> and that person wouldn't kind of you know have a little colloquialism. So we worked with the writers quite a lot to play with those things. Um, but yeah, and, and instead you had this American in a fish out of water story in a small town in New Zealand, fictional town, of which I was the, um, uh, what was my job? I own the plant centre, um, the botanist of the town. <laughs> and then um, uh, and a lovely Anna Julian, who was kind of like the uptight Charlotte, owned, the, owned a competing in with freaky, terrifying dolls in it. And... Um, Blair String was the baker, the gay baker, and him and his husband. Uh, it was great. So you've got lots of quirky little characters in it, but obviously the star was Christina Milian, who was delightful. Yeah. So what was it like working across her? I was a huge fan of her music growing up. Yeah, I know. It's really funny how many people have said that. And like, as soon as I sort of say she was the star of the movie, they, the eyes light up and they're like, dip it low. Oh, yeah. Amazing song. And I didn't realize she'd done a reality TV show of her own. Um, called the Millions or the Millions make Millions or something like that. I still haven't watched it. She is adorable. She's a very, very sweet and lovely uh, 
talented young lady who was here. Um, like her daughter came down for a little while and I think she left after shooting and um, fell pregnant with her next child and now she's just had another child so she's got three in total and you would think that she's about 22 years old <laughs> like she's just she looks exactly the same as she did back then and um but really kind and sweet and, and lovely to work with and it it's a comedy it you know we were all trying to inject it with as much sort of silly physical comedy and stuff like that as we could and she was totally always on board throwing herself downstairs and playing with goats and doing you know car stunts and stuff like that she was she was into it so it was really cool but of course we had a an Australian playing our uh hero male New Zealand lead which of course lots of Kiwis and Australians were like huh pretty sure this dude's from Australia but you know the majority of the audience unfortunately overseas wouldn't wouldn't notice although actually I've had lots of fans there was a lot of fans who wrote things about like why is an Australian playing a Kiwi from lots of places and I think I think they were surprised by it um, how many people figured that out because we're all a little bit more savvy with our global um, ears now. We are, we are, because I think some people think that Australian and New Zealanders sound the same, but we don't, we don't. We certainly don't, not when you're mm. from here. Um, and, yeah, Adam was cool. I just think he, he was going to try and do a New Zealand accent at some point, and then I think probably to his credit he went, mm, nah, I'm not even going <laughs> to not even gonna bother because, you know, you either get that really wrong and then you get slammed for getting that really wrong or just speak as yourself and there's a backstory where he was raised in Australia that we, nobody even talked about. <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's what we went with in the end. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. What's the difference between, say, working on a film and a television series? Oh, so many differences. I mean, obviously not as many as the difference between theatre and TV, um, but I think with a film, you know, up front you have the whole piece, you've got the whole script, everybody knows what the blueprint for this project is. Um, and especially, like, as a guest character or even, you know, even, like, sometimes leads in films or, like... Um, when it comes to the shoot, you, you don't always actually have a lot to do. So if I look at that shoot and think about those of us that featured quite heavily in it as sort of guest characters, you know, we might have only shot something like seven days out of, I think, like a 20 to 25-day shoot. So you're, you know, just the practical, physical impact of what you're doing is obviously not as big as a TV series. It doesn't take up as much time. And a TV series is uh, more... Sometimes you have more time with a film because we didn't with this one, to be honest, this film was definitely shot hard and fast and that's always to do with the budget. Um, how many days a film's going to shoot for. Traditionally with a film, you sort of have enough time to take time on shots and, you know, make it look feel like a film. But this was um, lower budget than that. Uh, I guess with a TV series, you're also moving very fast because you're trying to shoot a lot of content in a sort of, in the same amount of time as maybe a film or, you know, if you've got a, for example, Fresh Eggs is a six episode, six eps, one hour series. We had three months to shoot that. Um, the structure of how you shoot based on your locations and um, the order of events is, is, you know, is again, it's based on budget and it's sort of, uh, also it's a bit more of a moving beast I think when you start, a lot of the time you shoot uh, the first two episodes of a TV series as one block. So maybe one director will do the first two episodes together and you sort of, uh, different directors will come in because they require 
more prep time. So they're prepping while you're shooting and then you move on to the next one. But there's just kind of more of like a, once you get the circus show up and running in that first week or two, it's an evolving beast. Um, and I think as your character, sometimes, and this was true for Fresh Eggs, you're uh, shooting episodes one and two, but they haven't even finished and um, um, signed off on your final episodes. So a lot of the time you don't even know what your character is going to do in the very immediate future. You know, the, the, as, as the actor, I had read the first two episodes of Fresh Eggs and I think when we started shooting, maybe I'd read the third, but we were already shooting it to that first block when I've got the final ep three and four. And then while you're shooting it three and four, we got the final ep five and six. So it's a, as much of a surprise to us as it is to an audience when you're watching a show sometimes how it evolves. You don't you don't actually have all of the um all of the inside knowledge that maybe maybe audience members think think that we do. That would make it a bit difficult, wouldn't it, if your character you think is supposed to have an arc of some sort, but you don't know what the arc is gonna be? Yeah, 100%. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And like, you know, maybe on a bigger show, like an Ozark or something like that, the writers will have figured all of those things out and maybe the actors will be given story outlines and beats so they can kind of say, this is what's coming and gonna happen. But you don't have the scenes and finer details because the thing with a TV series is as soon as a series gets green lit or gets in New Zealand, gets the funding, that money starts being spent the minute it's it's allocated. And that becomes the race to the finish line. Because as soon as somebody is hired and a production manager is hired or a location manager is hired and locations have to be found and bookings have to be made and crew has to be hired, the money starts going out the door. And so the, the race to that finish line of getting this production shot under this budget begins. And um, I think in America particularly, they tend to put a lot more time and money into development. They have more time and money to get writers in rooms, spending the time developing storylines, making sure they know where the end of that show is going. With TV series in New Zealand, a lot of the time things get funded based on their pilot scripts or the first two scripts in a series outline. And, um, <clears throat> and so once that funding money's been allocated, you know, as soon as you kind of have a production outlet, like the production dates lined up and people are starting to be employed, you're off and running and it's just kind of, yeah, a race to get it done. And you're trying to do that with lots of knowledge and lots of constraint, you know, producers know how that works. They know the time that it takes to do certain things. And so every production is dictated by how good those producers are at planning and managing budgets and giving you the tools and the space and the time or whatever that you need to get the job done. But as an actor, I guess I got really used to it on Shortland Street as well. You know, you start with a character and who you're playing, what that character does is going to change and evolve. And I, you know, ended up on a show for seven years where the storylines, you, you, you get those storylines are being written every six weeks. So you could turn into the murderer, you could turn into the villain, you could turn into the goofy comic you know and 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 so with something like fresh eggs the characters were more clearly drawn out but we didn't know where they were going to go um but yeah that's i guess that's a part of the skill set of making television and i kind of love it 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 uh it keeps things very alive i think if you you know like it's if you've read a book and you know what happens in the end 
and then you had to go and tell somebody what that book was about, you probably give, by the time you've done it three or four times, you might give quite a boring reading of what that, what the story and the plot is in that book. Mm. And so your opinion of things starts to change the more that you know it. And so there is something to be said for the kind of alive nature of like, and then they're going to do this. And, you know, like it's, um, yeah, I think it keeps it alive in the filmmaking process. Um, just the same as like something like a huge Marvel movie that I guess, you know, the script is very well drawn out and it's all very well planned. But when you come to shoot on the day, you're still always looking for gold and a new beat that wasn't there before or the actor to deliver a line in a way that changes an idea for everybody. And that's where I love the collaboration of television because the writer has set out these ideas, which, you know, in, in the best circumstances can be viewed as a blueprint for what the show can be, as opposed to a concrete idea. Uh, and, you know, you're always looking for those little moments where it's like, oh, wow, they delivered that line like that. And it's kind of was a bit more sinister than we thought. And that gives us a sense of mystery and maybe we could float this idea. And a lot of the time, again, internationally, you know, writers and things will be on set so that they can work with those um, new ideas as they come up. Hmm. So, yeah. In Makes film, sense. Yeah, it's a, it's a more finite thing, I suppose. In, in TV series, you're working sort of longer and a t typically faster, and you just have less time to stand around and discuss things. You just have to get on and do them. And some part of filmmaking is great when that's the case, I think. I've heard that Shorten Street is brutal in regards to how fast it works. Was that yes. the case? Absolutely. Yeah. Brutal. I mean, look, I wouldn't call it brutal in the sense you know what you're getting into as soon as you're there. Um, it's just, it is its own beast. Nothing else works quite as fast as Shorten Street, or I hope it doesn't, because you do lose quality. You lose... <laughs> You lose the time to, you know, take time on things, which is is the difference between watching an incredible piece of cinema that, you know, managed to capture something and, and just two people talking in a room. <laughs> and Shortland Street is a is a plot-driven shot. Um it's about, you know, it's about it's about advancing the story, what happened next to those people, what happened next to those people, you know. So the nature when it first started, Shorty Street was the um, <clears throat> fastest made television show in the world. I think they introduced the technology that they used to someone in the UK back way back because it's now 25 or seven or something years old. And um, and it's the 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 can the fact that uh, the show has three cameras in a room that are recording simultaneously. The director has plotted out where they are cutting that scene, how they're cutting that scene. And given that information to somebody who sits in an editing suite watching and pressing the buttons that switches between those three cameras. So as opposed to a normal one camera, single camera show, or even a two camera show, which is what Outrageous Fortune was when you're filming, uh, you know, you, you, you set up for one angle and film those two angles at the same time, but you still have to do that scene all over again from another angle to get your other coverage. Shortland Street, you put three people in a room, three cameras, you can get all of that in one go. So it only takes, or it used to only take us about 20 minutes to shoot one scene in completion. And that scene would then go on and have very, you know, tweaks done to it in editing later. But that's how it was done fast. And it's also because it's built, done in a studio with every set has three walls. 
uh, and top lighting. So you, the, the thing that takes a long time when you're shooting a film or a long form TV series is moving the lights and moving the camera in between takes, in between setups, sorry. And in Shortland Street, you don't have to do that. It's all there. So that's how they move so fast. Oh. So it is, and, and the turnaround between the writers writing and us then shooting um, that script was back in the day about six weeks, three months they wrote in advance. And we'd be getting the drafts six weeks later and then shooting it two weeks later, something like that. So, yeah, you were shooting for a show that has five episodes of 30 minutes of screen time, well, 28, 26 minutes of screen time because it has ads. You would shoot five episodes worth of the show a week, not in order, obviously, but that amount of time. Whereas it would take two weeks to shoot, say, two, it would shoot take 14 days to shoot uh, two 45-minute episodes of Outrageous Fortune. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That does make sense. How the heck would you memorize all these lines then? Great. <laughs> 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 By developing a photographic memory at a young age. <laughs> Pretty much it. I, my character did a lot of talking and I would, I got to the point where I could learn about 10 scenes. I would have looked at them the night before, but then I would sit in the makeup chair in the morning for my 45-minute hair and makeup and be learning my lines in the chair. I mean, you've rehearsed them at that point. Most of the time we'd done rehearsals. So you had already said those lines out loud and got them in your body a little bit and read them knowing what your storyline was. So then by the time you actually come to shoot them, they went in pretty fast. Um, I had to unlearn the way I learned lines when I left Shortland Street because it's not great for <laughs> the acting. <laughs> As, you know, it's so fast that a lot of the time you just start speaking words because you have to get them out. Whereas once I'd left, I kind of got to take the time to learn, you know, what you want to do with a script. And I think why people why people think it's so hard to learn lines is that they just think about the lines on the page. The easier, easy way to learn a script is to read it and look at what you're trying to say and what the ideas are behind lines and what your character wants and what your... Uh, the um, other actors in the scene, what their characters want and understand the scene from an internal place. And then the lines go in really easily because you know the flow of, of what is actually occurring in that scene and in those moments. So I find, I mean, and also you're talking to someone who I got the role of Pinocchio at my um, my first in my first theatre production when I was eight years old, and I remember going on a school. We went. We obviously had the August school holidays, and I learned all the lines to like a two page monologue when I was eight. No, I learned the whole the lines to the whole script when I was eight, in uh, while we were on holiday. But I think that was just because I was so excited about doing this play. But I, I. You know, it's just, it's like learning to fly a plane. You learn what all the tools are and all the kind of thing and you know where they are instinctively. There's something in your body, I think, um, once you've been doing acting for a long time that sort of just kind of understands how they go in. And they go in differently for different people depending on what kind of learner you are, whether you're visual, whether you're kinetic, whether you're um, oral. Some people listen to them and have to play them back all the time. Um, they're all really completely valid and amazing ways of learning lines. And I, I've probably used all of them at different times of my life so far. 
Oh, but yeah, wow. Shorty Street was a bit different. Shorty Street was hard and fast. And I just, when I would forget a word while I was doing a scene, I'd be like, it's an S word on the top right-hand corner of the second paragraph down. Like I could know exactly where it was on the page that I'd forgotten. I just couldn't see it in my mind's eye. And then, um, yeah, as I said, I think when I, now, now I learn, now lines are, are more about the ideas. Hmm. You have Did- to sometimes scene really quickly for an audition or something if it's come up and you just have to learn it fast and I guess that's just muscle memory really. Did you get sore facial muscles from smiling so much because Waverly smiled a lot right? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if I got sore facial muscles then but I do have a story about one time that I did. Robin Malcolm uh, who of course at the time was playing Nurse Ellen on Shortland Street and I got to go to Fiji for a promotional trip, I think we were taken there by the Women's Day magazine or something like that. And it was my 21st, I remember it because it was my 21st birthday. I turned 21 while I was over there. And Shortland Street is hugely popular in Fiji. And it was the first time any Shortland Street actors had gone there. So we were a very exciting big hit. And I had about three different birthday cakes and you know, all the rest of it. But we, I remember Robin and I were sitting outside the airport waiting to fly back home. And, you know, anyone who's been to Fiji, there's a weird like midnight or one o'clock in the morning flight home just because of the time difference or something when you leave Nandi. And we were sitting at the airport and I and I turned to Robin and I just remember going, going to say something and then going, like, I can't, I, I couldn't pull my cheeks down. I was like, my face <laughs> is here and it's stuck here and it hurts. And I've just realised it's because we haven't stopped smiling for seven days <laughs> and talking to people, and this is really weird. So that's that's the only time that my face got stuck <laughs> by, by smiling. I had to do um, I had to do filming for the uh, the launch of the Hamilton to Auckland train. I was doing doing some filming there, and I was I had to film Jacinda for a majority of the time there. And I was wondering if her facial muscles were getting sore because of the amount of time she was smiling. I reckon it probably does. I reckon yeah. she did have some tight jaw issues at some point. Yeah, for sure. I mean, gosh, and she gets us to have so many photos. It's like, bam, bam. <laughs> used to it. Yeah. <laughs> um, did you go see the Outrageous Fortune house before it got demolished? I didn't get there before it got demolished. So sad, though. But, yeah. I mean, you know, had spent lots of time outside it, obviously. And um, no, and do you know why? Because um, I think lockdown happened, that weird three-day lockdown that we had happened just as it was going to happen. And we did, there was a group of us um, sort of actors and stuff who were trying to get over there and <laughs> stand in front of the fence and say, don't do it, or or just, you know, kind of be there to say goodbye it's so weird, but at least I guess it's immortalized on um, what can you call it now? It's not celluloid, digital. <laughs> <laughs> it's immortalized on our screens digitally forever. Um, so we'll always have that. Yeah, yeah. I used to live on Royal View Road. So when I used to go to school, I'd see it all the time. So I haven't actually been back yet. So I don't know how I'm going to feel when I drive back. And, and there's going to be something else there. It'll be weird. Yeah. So when, because I, so that was 2006 was when I was on it and I started in season two. And so 2005 must have been the first year. But yeah, it's rolled rolled a good 20, you know, 10 years of, yeah, of the show. Crazy. Hmm. No, when did they shoot Westside up to? 
only like a couple of years ago, eh? Or one year? Uh, yeah, I lose track of time. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> Amazing that it lasted, you know, it lasted for that, but it's kind of weird. And I suppose it's, um, I suppose it's poetic that it's, it's, uh, it was demolished as the last, you know, last season of that show was filmed. Yeah, bittersweet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm. What was it like working across uh, John Reese davies on Fresh Eggs? Um, John is a one of those fabulous actors who the first moment that we met, he sat down and started telling me stories about Peter O'Toole and, um, you know, working with, um, uh, oh, God, I want to say Sir Ian McKellen, but that's not who I mean. Um, John Hurt, you know, like he has worked with some of the greatest actors in the world in his time and is a great storyteller. Um, and and so I, I got lots of stories and his big booming voice and he's a very large personality and um and it was it was wonderful like I had a lot of fun he is uh I think that like Fresh Eggs was when we started was a very if you've seen it visually it is a very um unique kind of show in that lots of um single setups for scenes in a very wide angle lens um that are not very typical so I guess a typical version of a, a of shooting tv would be that you kind of come into a scene to shoot it and you shoot a wide master and then you come in closer for your coverage and as actors you get used to the idea that because of the pace of television you can kind of use that wide master as a you know not as a rehearsal because you're shooting at some point but like kind of finding your feet with the scene and you might make, be making little choices just about how you're saying something or where you're where you're using a prop and uh, and then you know that you've got time to kind of get get to a sort of slightly better or bigger or whatever level of performance when it comes in for your close-up or when it's going to be on my close-up you can like for example if I was doing a crying scene then you might kind of know that you're not gonna you don't have to get yourself to that emotional place every single time that you need to save yourself a little bit for your close-ups and not you know not give away too much of your emotional energy when it, the camera's on another person and you're not actually being seen because you have to conserve that energy uh, and with Fresh Eggs we'd started shooting Cohen and I had started shooting that show uh, the first 14 days of that shoot Cohen and I were in every single scene and which is really unusual and unique and also a total gift and amazing because him and I got to find our feet with each other and our kind of rhythm and and learn very quickly which we didn't know at the beginning that you know we we're going to be on a show where you rehearse it and block it and then when we start shooting it you're literally sometimes only doing two setups so it wasn't that typical style because that's a it's done in a much more uh, graphic and I guess comic book novel comic book kind of style um which there's that show that British show um are we swearing on this yeah you can swear of course <laughs> It's called. I swear a lot, but the, the show's called "The End of the Fucking World." It's a real, on Netflix. Beautiful. It's based off a. Um, I think it was a Stanley comic, and it's sort of real center framing and very cinematic and very wide. And um, we had got used to the fact that we were shooting like that, and you just get used to the fact that you're only going to sometimes get a couple of takes, 
and then they're turning around and getting one more angle and then we're done and we're moving on to another scene. And as an actor, that's can be quite confronting because you're sort of like, oh, I didn't get the chance to do my best work or if you didn't know about it. And I remember our first day on set with John. John didn't know what the style of the show was because, again, we'd already been shooting for, I think, maybe a month by the time he actually first came in. Um, and it was just, you're in the role, and it's like, welcome, John, awesome. Hey, we've got this huge scene where he had a massive monologue and he's walking around the table sort of interrogating me and Cohen. And... Um, uh, and I think he found it really hard because he was like, well, I'll use that as a rehearsal and then we'll come in and we'll be getting different angles. And all of a sudden someone was like, right, we're moving on. He's like, what? <laughs> um, excuse me. And I felt really, I felt terrible for him. And I, at some point was just like, oh, John, <laughs> we're kind of only doing like two setups and stuff. And yeah, it's weird. <laughs> um, but, you know, he's very old school and has a very, uh, old school theatricality to him, but also comes with this kind of innate breadth of, I guess, mana and and sort of being that he carries with him all the time, which was great for the role. I mean, essentially, he was playing a version of Harvey Weinstein, which is not that nice, but he took to it and sort of with fervor and went, right, if I'm going to be an asshole, I'm going to be a real fucking asshole. Yeah, so it was it was a treat to watch him work, and it was a treat to just be able to, you know work against him yeah yeah it's good on the resume isn't it <laughs> yeah i guess yeah <laughs> yeah so i can't go without uh without asking you about obviously your your book and the whole uh thing you've been through with crohn's disease uh yeah, yeah. the reason why i wanted to touch on it as well is because last year i actually had i don't know what ibs or i don't know what it is inflammation of the gut mm. um where I basically went and saw someone in regards to maybe having some allergies. So I got like one of those hair tests done and yeah. I found out I was um, allergic to dairy and sugar and I'd had too much of it. So it had caused my gut to be inflamed. So I was getting bloated a lot and had a lot of gas and stuff. Was that mm. sort of similar to what you had at certain points with Crohn's disease or was it much worse? <laughs> um how old are you now, telling questions? <laughs> I know what to tell you. No, I'm, um, Under 30, over 30? <laughs> I'm, I'm 34. Okay, so you've done really, really well to get to the age of 34 and not have, you know, other issues coming up in your guts from having too much sugar or having too much inflammatory, inflammatory foods, I reckon. Um, but, and so don't feel bad, <laughs> uh, was my point. Um, Crohn's disease is very different. Crohn's disease is uh, you, um, the, the symptoms, unfortunately, are similar to something else called ulcerative colitis. So Crohn's and ulcerative colitis and other autoimmune issues, but Crohn's is an inflammatory bowel disease where I guess the first symptoms were searing pain whenever I ate. So like cramps in the stomach, like the bowel feels like it's kind of twisting and knives are being scraped up the inside of your bowel and stuff. Like, you know, that was really intense. And then because I was really young, I was like only 13 years old when that started happening. Um, I then stopped eating uh, or ate less. And so um, you then start to become malnourished you can get iron deficient you know losing weight but not you know in, in a really unhealthy way losing like elasticity in, in your skin and um getting really weird and pale and white and my mum kind of started out by thinking that maybe you know at first she thought I was a 13 year old girl who was maybe getting a period and so I was kind of being given 
um, Panadol and stuff like that. And then it didn't go away and it took us a long time to get it diagnosed. But a lot of people with Crohn's have much more like intense pain. Um, and then, you know, but the thing is, is that that stuff probably started maybe as just gut discomfort and <clears throat> good on you for going and get it, get it tested out because most people, lots of us are really good at ignoring pain. You know, we can tolerate a lot of pain or uncomfort or just like that stuff. Like you're, when you're like, eh, things are getting a bit weird down there or just in your tummy and you don't feel great and you don't know why. Like to go and actually ask the questions and see your GP or naturopaths and, and do things like those allergy tests and stuff is like really uh, powerful uh, and great step for you in, in the just taking the responsibility for your own health and well-being. And I think that's kind of why we wrote the book because um, people we're just not we as humans aren't very good at it. We have had our um, healthcare was something that was when we were young was always someone else's responsibility. And then when it all of a sudden becomes your responsibility to look after yourself, you're like, well, doctors doctors know everything, right? And the reality is now they don't because our species is evolving, our food systems are flawed, um, you know, diseases, i.e. COVID viruses are evolving and, and you know, like we're, we're living in an evolving world and it's evolving rapidly and our, I think humans learn really slowly and our, our behavior takes a long time to catch up and you know, the, the rise of gut health problems, the, the way that now science literally only just has uh, been able to identify the direct link between what goes on in your gut and what goes on in your brain. The fact that your feelings are fundamentally affected by your food. And even now, um, like by your food and what happens in your gut. And the fact that not everyone is born with the same gut bacteria. Everybody is born with a different uh, garden of microflora in their gut so everyone is coming at it from a different place in the first place that's why I you know tanked at the age of 13 and you've taken till 34 to you know start to have a few issues cropping up but yeah uh what I've learned is inflammation is still um you know number one biggest cause of disease in the body and that disease is now a term that we should look at meaning dis-ease of the body and that is that it can be physical it can be mental it can be emotional it can be spiritual it can be uh energetic <clears throat> and cellular and so um i guess it's just something i've now had a relationship with all of that stuff for such a long time i'm an avid learner and i've been really curious about it all i became a pilates teacher because i loved learning about the function of the body and the way the body is knitted together and how it works. I'm fascinated by that kind of stuff as an actor anyway. You know, like I, I love learning about people and why we do the things we do and how we do the things we do. And um, and so it's kind of, for me, just a part of that knowledge base. Um, and I'm also just a storyteller. And so it was, uh, it's been a bit of a mission to kind of, yeah, bring that story of what I did when I had Crohn's, what I learned about it, how I healed my body and how I've sort of had to keep working at it to stay healthy ever since then. And now I've got 20 years of having looked after my body and not got sick, which is great for me. But, um, you know, I guess I've learned a few things that I wanted to share with people along the way. Um, and so it was really important for me to kind of find an interesting way to tell that story. And it's not just a book about me telling that story. It's a, oh, 
I don't have it here. It's in the other room. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, it's a really beautiful coffee table book, hardcover with gorgeous pictures that we took um, out here at Piha. I'm actually out at Piha at the moment. Uh, and it's hopefully it's something that people can keep using more like a recipe book for health. It's got lots of little ideas in there uh, and ways that you can, I think the biggest you know thing you can do for your health is make small adjustments, use, try an alternative to something like if, you know, nobody wants to be told that they have to stop everything all at once. None of us. And sugar is wonderful. Dairy <laughs> <laughs> is delicious. And there's all these things that we've been gluten is great. And there's all these things that we've been told, you know, are now bad for us that we've all been eating our whole lives. So I get why it's really hard to all of a sudden go, do I have to stop it all, all at once? And the answer is no, not unless you're really, really, really sick. But you can start to use or try alternatives that can make making big changes a little bit easier on yourself. So I just think you don't have to you don't have to become perfect. You don't have to become, you know, some saint of wellness walking around and doing yoga and breathing deeply and you know only eating kale. You need to you need to be practical and reasonable about it. And and I have learned that. And so I've written a book to kind of try to speak to that a little bit more. So do you keep like a food diary? Because I've, I've kind of got a diary of foods that I know if I have too much of, I react to. So say if I have potatoes, um, bread, pasta, if I have too much of it, I bloat a lot. So I kind of avoid that. So for instead of potatoes, I might have kumara, for example. Uh, I won't have pasta. I might have rice instead. But do you have like certain um, foods that you avoid? And certain yep. foods that, that you replace? Yeah. And I, and I think, A, keeping a food diary when you're having to learn about the stuff yourself is really useful because it's just really good to see it written down, you know, in front of you. And that having three of those things at once is, is going to cause bloating, but it doesn't mean that you can't, you know, not have a piece of bread if it's a sourdough or a seeded piece of bread for your toast in the morning, if that's something you love, you know, but... But then making those substitutions is um, is really good, and that's totally what I did back when I was changing my diet. Now that it's changed, it's pretty good, and I just don't eat the stuff that's bad for me. You just learn it, and you kind of know it for yourself. But I think that thing of listening to your body, noticing like, wow, I ate too. My, my brother's doing it a little bit at the moment too, you know. He is like, it's really hard to control your diet if you're out at work all day and you have to buy lunch and all we sell in New Zealand, it seems, is giant sandwiches and bakeries filled with bread. Um, but it's the difference is if you're eating that at lunch and you're having toast in the morning and you're having potatoes for dinner and some pasta and some rice, it's far too much for your body to break down and it is likely that might start to hurt after a while. So, yeah, the idea would be to try and go, I'll just have that you know, potato in the evening or the pasta in the evening, but I make sure I'm eating a salad for lunch or, um, you know, cereal or something different in the morning. Like you've just got to look at the balance of it all. And uh, so I, I definitely used food alternatives to get to where I got to. Um, you know, for me, I had to stop dairy for a little while, but now I love a good piece of cheese, but I don't drink normal milk. I drink milk alternatives because uh, it was too heavy for my system. Um and it, you just get to a point where you realize balance means little bits of everything is okay, but a lot of everything is just not great for any of us. And then you have to listen to your own body and pick your, your favorites and the things you don't want to do without and the things that you can kind of 
um, make a deal with yourself on, you know, like you can make a deal with yourself on potato. I mean, maybe, but maybe some people are like fries are their most favorite food in the world and they want to be able to eat them. But you know, three times a week's probably quite good. <laughs> Once a day, not so bueno. And, and if you're loading that up with all the other stuff, then yeah, it's going to have an impact on the body. So I think my lessons are really about learning to listen to yourself, learning what's good for you, and then trying to make those changes that have to be made in small ways that feel manageable to you, as opposed to things that feel like a huge mountain. Right. Do you take a... Uh, sort of change your diet as we're evolving because of the way our food is produced and because of that thing I was talking about before about how we're evolving. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> For sure. Do you take uh, turmeric supplements or you include turmeric in a lot of your food? I make sure I'm definitely getting turmeric in my food. Um, you need to use turmeric if you're cooking it. You want to use it with a bit of coconut oil or butter because the fat in the fat in those things helps bring out um, um, piperine, which is the name of the component inside turmeric that actually is the is the part that is anti-inflammatory for our bodies so um you know you could chew on a piece of turmeric which is be an awful thing to do don't do that um but it's not necessarily going to be great for you you know that's not going to do a hell of a lot but if you cook it in your food or put it in a smoothie but you've got a little bit of fat and a bit of black pepper it brings out the piperine in the root and that's what's good for us. And that's why taking the supplements is obviously a much easier way to do that. And you want to make sure you've got a supplement that's got piperine in it, which most of them do now. Because hmm. that's, that's what they need. So, yeah, it's really good for you to help with an anti-inflammatory diet. Because I take one every morning with something called neem oil. Um, I've heard of that. I don't know what that's good for, though. Uh, it just helps with um, making sure that the food uh, is uh, easily digested in the body, particularly with me because I, I have uh, constipation issues. So, like, it just makes sure that I have good bowel motions and helps with the inflammation as well. My partner's Indian and she knows all these herbal medicines, so that's why. Brilliant. Oh, my God. I mean, I wish I had that kind of knowledge, but the Ayurvedic, we talk about that in the book. So good for you. But, yeah, all the spicy food, not that easy for you to digest so you want to be really careful yeah i don't i don't i'm gonna talk about your poop with people especially with the people you love or not pooping you know like they're awkward and unsexy things to talk about right but it's happening to everybody yeah it's Um, human nature but people just don't really talk about it yeah turmeric neem oil cinnamon cardamom all like indian spices are so good in your food to help with that so many of the eastern cultures have uh components to their diets that are 100 percent health related it's it's <clears throat> it's all like so many um uh, of those diets have things that are literally medicinal foods like you know let food be thy medicine um, is is um, is a definitely an adage that I kind of live by. Like it can help heal for sure, mm. and it can do a lot of damage. Yeah, yeah. I was talking to my partner recently about this, about how 
this the lifestyle that we live today is very different from the olden days, right? We're not as active as we used to be. So obviously we're not digesting like we used to. So therefore, and a lot of processed foods. So when we, we're eating it and we're not as active, it's just a bad combination. Yeah, it was designed to give, it, food was designed to be fast when everybody was having to, was going to work every day and, you know, very active and it was designed to give you sugar and energy. And now we're not using that energy because we're sitting in front of computer screens. So it's going into our cells and doing damage. And that's why it's like, you need to be, we need to be eating less and we need to be eating more nutritious food. And we need to know that the food that we're eating is being, is coming, you know, that where the source of that food is coming from. And that in turn affects the way that agriculture happens and that in turn affects the health of the planet. And that would be really great for all of us. You know, like there's some amazing documentaries and I think people are getting really overwhelmed by food and documentaries that are telling us, you know, that you could be an athlete and be completely plant-based and it's like, maybe, but I couldn't, my body won't work like that. Not every body will work that well and on that diet. And it's a very specific set of needs. And then there's other ones that, you know, and it's like, there's no doubt that the um, beef production in the US is terrible for the planet. Um, it, it's not quite the same in New Zealand. So it's just that sort of, um, you know, we need uh, uh, cyclical farming and, you know, and um, animal, there's just so much information out there. I, I won't get into it because it'll become a whole different podcast um, that I think people get very overwhelmed by it and don't know where to go for the right information. And really you just have to be your own judge and juror. You have to pay attention to what your body is telling you, what your needs are, what feels good for you. Um, when you have great energy and when you start to feel like shit, pay attention. And as you say, write it down and try something different tomorrow. Don't have to solve the world's problem, your own pro your problems like in a day, but um, it's, you know, I have to constantly work at it. And sometimes I get really busy and stressed. And sometimes I take a step back and go, I, I know that I'm getting a bit inflamed when my joints get a bit creaky or I get dryness and redness in my skin. And I'm like, oh, my body's getting angry. Generally, it means I've been having too much wine or too much sort of baked goods or something. I've got a bit sugary or I've got emotionally stressed. So I have to go and do things to keep myself in check. And that's how I use all of the things I've learned to try to keep balance in my life. Hmm. But as an actress, like you're obviously your life is go, go, go. You probably don't get time to prepare meals in advance, do you? So I don't do meal preparation in advance very well because more about the kind of that's more to do with the uh, freelance nature, I guess, of my life and that I'm doing something kind of different every day. I don't have the same job every day. And that, yeah, I run around a lot and, uh, but I do pretty good at making sure that there's like, I know there's always good stuff in my fridge. Um, and I, and I think when it comes to the acting side of things, I'm, I've got much better at energy management. For example, when you're shooting, you know, you're, you're up really, really early, you're going for a long time, but sometimes you need just as much energy at 5 p.m. when you're doing the last scene of the day as you did in the morning. So you have to get really good at managing your own energy levels. So I don't eat a huge meal in the middle of the day anymore. You kind of stay away from the shitty food on the catering table. Um, and I'll bring my own juices to um, and smoothies to set because they're light and they're easy for your body to digest and you can have lots of them. Just, I just have them all day long rather than only bringing one, you know, or just drinking a whole huge thing all at once. It's like I 
I, I have a lot less a lot more often when I'm shooting um, to try to help with that sustained energy. And But you're really physical as well. You're often moving a lot with that stuff. And so um, that's kind of different to how I am when I'm not shooting, but I'm just kind of in my, I guess, more um, downtime stuff. But I spend a lot of time in front of the computer. So I have to make sure exercise is a big part of my routine. So yeah, you just have to literally map out your own uh, prescription for your own health. Fair enough. Fair enough. Is there any <laughs> is there any particular foods that you completely stay away from? So obviously you sugar's like... the word. So just but, I just make sure I'm very careful about where my sugar's coming from. But sugar's in everything. Yeah. So you have to say it's not in real food. <laughs> or do it's you... in everything that comes in a packet. So the old thingy of shop around the outside of the supermarket, eat the food that's come from somewhere close to you. Uh, you know, vegetables, seeds, nuts, meat that's come from locally well-sourced organic farms, uh, you know, kaimoana, especially if someone in your family caught it for you. You know, like that's all really good for you. All of the packaged shit is not great. Do you um, uh, Do you ever replace anything with Stevia? Stevia? The stevia. Sugar. Yeah, one of my stevia. Stevia, yeah. <laughs> um, no. <laughs> I used, no. I used, uh, if you want a, a good alternative, I used honey in my coffee for a while. Honey? But, yep. It was great. Delicious when you get used to it. Um, and look, some of them are great. If, they, if you're trying to wean yourself off white sugar, then get on the raw sugar, a demira sugar, uh, or the, yeah, stevia is fine. You know, great. It doesn't. T- it's it's kind of got a funny taste to it though. So that's why I didn't use it. It's not so much about what it is. It's just like I didn't like the taste of it. So I think, and I just, you just get used when you stop eating chemical and processed sugar. Your taste buds don't like it anymore. I don't like. You couldn't pay me to drink like to eat the old chocolate and stuff that I used to eat. Like I'm, I have totally got a sweet tooth. And I'd eat sugar, I guess, in a, if, when it's in a cake that someone's made or, you know, like that kind of stuff. But that's special treat foods. That's not every day. You have to take start taking sugar out of your daily diet. Yeah, well, I've, I've found that, like, even with some stuff that I eat, like, that I don't eat now, really, and then I'll go and have, like, say, KFC, and I haven't had it in six months, it'll actually taste like crap, and then I'll feel like crap after I've eaten it. I'm like, why did I do that? You notice that you feel like shit and that's exactly why and that's because all of the stuff going on on your gut is sending messages through your bloodstream that sends messages to your brain and that sends messages to your hormones and your feelings and your thoughts and all of those things are connected and we've just got to get used to the idea that we aren't a tube that stuff just passes through without having any effect on you know like we are skin and cells and everything that you put in you becomes a part of you and that includes and influences your feelings. And, and yeah, I think even as an actor, the more I learned that stuff, the more important it became to me because I have to be a feelings manager. I have to learn how to not just uh, manage my own emotional health, but manufacture feelings. And I do it better now than I did before. Um, because I've got, I'm just, you know, you know, a lot of the time you have to be quite an empty vessel in order to tune into how you really feel. So you don't want to eat stuff that's filling you up and making you feel heavy and taking heaps of energy to digest. 
Whereas all that stuff's taking energy and that's why we get tired after we've eaten a huge meal. Because it's your half of your body in this huge tract is doing all this work to process it and send it out. And you're like, I am exhausted because I've just eaten, you know, fish and chips. <laughs> I do want to say that you don't look like you've aged at all from your time in Shortland Street. I must say, given <laughs> everything that you've gone through, I'm like, you must have good <laughs> genes or you're using some de-aging makeup. I don't know. Like, but <laughs> I really don't. I have to look after myself. Uh, thank you for saying so. But also I looked like I was about 12 when I was 22. So I reckon that's got something to do with it. And maybe at some point I was going to like turn 50 and everything's going to go. Um, but I've always had, you know, always had a um, cheeky cheeks and a big round face and now it's working for me. You know what it is? I reckon it's because you smile so much and smiling uses less uh, muscles, right, than frowning. So maybe that's it. I do smile a lot. I am um, uh, grateful to be a typically happy person most of the time. (laughs) Yeah. So um, what are you working on at the moment? Uh, I'm working on... um, sort of more stuff to do with the book with good for you tv which is the website that the book we that um we've sort of been building around the book where i'm going to create video content um and keep telling stories like everything that we've just been talking about uh i want to keep the conversation going around that stuff uh so i'm going to keep producing little bits and pieces of video content for that and that will sit on goodforutv.co.nz plug for our website sign up and you'll get our uh, you know uh, emails once a month um and um i've just been doing some writing actually so i've been kind of uh writing for a little travel series that i was doing for um with viva and jaguar um and i am also writing and developing a tv series idea just been an ongoing kind of process that I keep having to like dip away to because I, I should the last thing that I did was uh, an episode of the Brokenwood Mysteries filmed that at the end of last year which was really fun had so much fun on that show uh, and that I think is going to be out in this the next series which is going to be on TVNZ it used to just be on Prime TV and now they've been uh, bought by TVNZ so I think the series seven is coming out on TVNZ sometime in the next month or so I think um and so catch me in an episode of that but the and so when I I sort of was shooting that and then yeah I every time I get some other job I have to put my writing down and now I'm coming back to that for um this month anyway that's this month ask me again what I'm up to in June I've got no idea (laughs) oh well you're keeping busy with that now (laughs) yeah Cool, cool. Well, hey, I'll wrap up there. Thank you so much for doing this. It was well, um, so pleasure to chat. I'm sorry it turned into a chat about your um, digestive troubles. I feel your pain. I hate hearing that people are into, uh, you know, and just even just suffering. It's really confusing and difficult, and that's why I kind of get quite passionate about trying to help people. Well, I like discussing it primarily because I still think it's – something that a lot of people don't know about. I mean, I, the only reason I know about it is because my partner pointed it out. That's, right. That's... But that's really, that's a completely valid and important, um, you know, way for that kind of stuff to be brought up when somebody else in your life that you care about is going, hey, you're not okay. 
and that's the true true with mental health with physical health it's just and that's like I say we're very very human beings are very good at tolerating and ignoring pain of some kind it can be really little but it is the little things that turn into big diseases in a year's time and honestly getting onto stuff like that now is how you will take care of your health in a much more longer form and how you can hope maybe prevent diseases long term you know the idea of catching something scary earlier rather than later whilst it's still scary is definitely better than the alternative i 100 percent agree yeah. well hey claire thank you so much for doing this it was an honor to chat to you so i very much appreciate it no worries it was all good yeah okay <laughs> that's the show everyone make sure you share like and subscribe and until next time stay safe